Um, hey, it's so good to see you guys. Um, I love the fact that uh, I feel like I was going to let you keep going, Rich, for a while on that one. So um, I just really am um, thankful for you all who made the effort to come out this morning. And um, I pray that uh, God would use his word this morning to transform us. As, um, as uh, Carl said, um, this is a, a really large, lengthy passage. And... Um, I can't do it justice to uh, try and get through the whole thing this morning. Um, it's Colossians chapter 2, 6 to 23 is where we're going to be. Uh, but uh, it's going to be a two-weeker. Um, so we're going to start today, and then uh, we're going to probably end up, not probably, we will end up going another week because there's no way I'm going to get through everything, even on one piece. And so here's, here's what I mean by that. Colossians 2, 2 to 23, you could probably go about five or six different ways with this passage. You could take two, five or six different ways to unpack it and, and deal with it. But this morning I chose one, and choosing that one is going to take us about two weeks to get through. So, uh, so we're going to start this week, and then we're going to go into chapter three next week with some practicality. So if you leave today and you're kind of like, I don't know what to do, perfect. Okay, so that'll be next week. We're going to talk about what to do. This week is just more information, so buckle in. Hopefully, I'll be with you. Um, I don't want to see many kids. Kids, if you have drawing pages, you're going to want those today because I'll probably be really boring. So just so you know, uh, adults are like, where are those at? Um, I need to grab some crayons real quick. Um, so that's where we're going to be. So here's, here's the thing I know about us. I know about us uh, in this church. I know about us as a nation. We are pretty divided um, right now. Uh, we are pretty divided as a nation. We're pretty divided uh, even as far as our beliefs and things like that. And it starts to come even within the church. These can be small divides. Um, such as, let's just toss this one out there, Northwest or Maslin? Thank you. There, see, Tusla or Perry, anyone? No, no Perrys. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to go to the other schools because you're like, what about us? See, schools kind of got a reaction. This is what happened first service too. That was kind of like, eh, we could go either way. You know, but, but here's where I start to divide us. And this is where everybody's going to get mad. Everybody ready? Osiers or Cherry Street Creamery? Wow, that was unanimous. Never mind. Okay, so let me toss in another one then. Osiers or Pavs? Wow, they just got loaded on Cherry Street's like Pavs down here. See, no matter where we are, we're we're divided. And and you're all wrong because there's a great place in Brewster called Just Ice Cream, and that's where it's at. So you're welcome for that. So that's where I go. Uh, so, So divisions are large, they're small, they're natural. But I think right now, these divisions are national. And so this morning, I don't mean to offend everybody in the room, but I probably am going to offend everybody in the room at some point this morning. So just be aware, we're going to be okay together. I love you in Jesus. So does Paul. But just for what it's worth, let's just see where we go today. All right. So as a nation, we are divided. Racially, there's divisions. Politics, we are divided. Sexuality, gender, class divisions. These are the cultural divisions that we live in. And these divisions are unfortunately not new. Um, A lot of these divisions were happening in the time of Paul's letters. And this morning, we're going to look at a longer passage that, again, I can't do justice to because it's just too long. Um, But instead, I want to pick up on this theme. And here's the main thing Paul, I think, wants us to get at in in one of the snippets of chapter 2. And that is this. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are part of a different nation. And as such, Paul warns us to not become deluded, taken captive, judged, or disqualified as you live in this foreign nation. 
If you, I'll say it again. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are part of a different me- nation, and the message today is to warn us not to become deluded, taken captive, or disqualified as we live in the here and now. As we live in this nation, let's not forget that we belong to Christ. We belong to a heavenly nation, a new kingdom. There's going to be a lot of words I need to define today. And so the first word I want to define for you is kingdom. When I say we are part of a new kingdom, what does that mean? It's a little confusing because throughout the Gospels, it's used a ton. And then it's almost like when Jesus leaves, like kingdom kind of gets dropped. Like it's mentioned a couple times in the, in the New Testament, but not like Jesus mentions it. So kingdom, let me give you a really short answer to what I mean by kingdom. It means Jesus is reigning. Okay? I think we get that. Not like reign, but reigning. God is in control. God is, Jesus is reigning. So when I say kingdom, just think, okay, I have a king. My king is reigning. We just sung about it in three songs, and he is reigning for us today. And since he is reigning, we live underneath his kingship, and he's creating then, as we live underneath this king, he's creating a holy nation and a people that live in the time between Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and the time where we will be eternally resurrected with him. Some say it like this, we live in the here and now and not yet. <laughs> so it's the most confusing thing in the world. Hebrews says we, are, we, we live with a perfecter who is perfecting us along the way. It is, it is this idea that we are continually being made like him in the here and now, but yet there is a kingdom to come. Matthew 4.17, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In 4.23, he talks about the kingdom again. In Matthew 13, in Matthew 18, in Matthew 13.11, he answers them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. And I think a little even clearer is in Romans 14.17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We as citizens of this kingdom are living in the here and now. And so suffice to say, we are under the reign of King Jesus. We are not under the reign of the United States. Yes, we honor the rules and regulations of the United States, but ultimately, for those who are in Christ, our king is Jesus. And there'll be a whole sermon series on kingdom at some point that I want to do, but that's not today. Today, Paul wants us to know that we are not of the nation we physically live in. He has us to see the divisions that can happen inside the church come oftentimes from the culture in which we live. So therefore, let me just kind of jump into chapter, six, or chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 to begin. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He says, therefore, which goes back to the previous chapter, And he talks about this idea of Christ being in us. But if you take it even further back, he talks about the gospel and this amazing truth found in chapter 1, namely that we are qualified, transferred, and delivered into this new kingdom. Chapter 1, verses 10 to 14. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience and joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So that's a lot of information right off the bat. So let me just recap everything real quick. We who have accepted Christ 
and surrendered our lives to him live under his reign and rule and do so because the king has qualified us, transferred us, and delivered us into this kingdom. So that's where we currently are. If we have a relationship with Christ, that's where you are this morning. And because we live in this kingdom, because the Colossian church lived in this kingdom, Paul writes to them and says, hey, I want to give you three warnings as you live in this culture. I want to share three things that that I don't want you to be caught off guard about. So he gives us three warnings. And again, this isn't going to be like chapter and verse this morning. This is going to be all over the passage. So just stick with me. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He says, don't get caught up in all the next great religion. Don't get caught up in all the human traditions that you get caught up in. They will take you captive. In other words, Jesus says, when you accept me, I make you free. Do not go back into bondage by trying to give up all these human traditions and elemental things of this world. Second warning is in 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. That's the second warning. The third warning, chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now, I told you there's going to be a lot of words in here that are kind of like, what? Okay, so asceticism, let's just go there first, because all of you are kind of like, uh, right? So we, it's not a word we normally use. You aren't going around saying, hey, how's your asceticism going? That's not what we do today. It is an unnecessary, it's defined as this, it's an unnecessary self-punishment and normally a bodily punishment and repentance of some kind of sin in their life. So basically, if you go back even to the early uh, days of, the, of the, the Catholic Church, there was these, these moments even in the 1600s and early that basically if you sinned, you would have penance. And penance kind of gradually got weaker as far as like the punishment was concerned. But early on, there were times even within the church where if you sinned, you had to bodily, you know, there's a bodily harm happening to yourself in order to show that you were remorseful. If you think of this, think of Elijah all the way back in the Old Testament where he's on Mount Carmel and he's having this competition with this other God. And and these guys are going crazy trying to get their God to answer him to the point that they're slashing themselves and cutting themselves and bleeding. And that was this asceticism. It's, It's this bodily harm that you're doing to yourself and this, this form of devotion to God to say, God, I'm so devoted to you. And it could be bodily, but I think also you could take the term and you could actually do it into the mental as well. Like I can put so much more guilt on myself than what God normally puts on me. And so I'm going to show how remorseful I am by continuing just to go at my sin and go at my sin and go at my sin. Instead, it's this unnecessary self-punishment done mainly to prove your devotion to God. And Paul says, don't allow that to be part of your life. Don't let that disqualify you. He goes in here, living these, these, these examples, says, do not be taken captive, do not be judged, do not be disqualified. He even says in chapter 2, verse 4, don't be deluded. In other words, don't, don't allow your brain to kind of just get caught up in all these things instead of just one track focus who Jesus is. Okay, so let's look at some things then. If, if, God, if Paul's giving us these warnings, let's look at some things that their world, their culture was pushing on them that they could possibly be deluded, taken captive, judged, disqualified for in this warning to this church in Colossae. So here's a couple things that they were dealing with. In verse 11, they were dealing with circumcision. 
It seems like it's always circumcision in the church. It seems like it's always a Jewish thing. And, and praise God that that's not an issue today. Otherwise, we'd have a really small attendance of guys in the room. And it would be all ladies today. And they're like, hey, do you want to come to my church? Nope. I'm good. Um, it, it's, it was an old law. It was part of the Old Testament. They said it's just part of that deal. And so for parents in the room, you can explain that later. You're welcome. Um, but, but that was, a, a, that was a, a part of the Old Testament that proved you were Jewish law and you followed it correctly. And he says, that doesn't matter. There's a circumcision of the heart that has come through Christ. So that was one of the issues. Food and drink was another one. Certain things that they would abstain from and others that they couldn't. And I, again, say praise God for Jesus who allows me to eat bacon. I mean, I am so happy that I can eat pork. Um, food and other drinks that they would abstain from were culture their issues. But they weren't just like things we can joke about today because at that point, they literally divided the church. Like they literally were like, does your church serve pork? Yeah, we eat it all the time. I'm out. I mean, it was, just, it was, it was, an, it was an easy, just we're, we're done. New moon and Sabbath festivals. Here's where we get a little weird because in the new moon and Sabbath festivals, these were actually prescribed in the Old Testament, especially when you get into Ezekiel 45, where he talks about these, these Sabbaths and these new moons and all those kind of things you're supposed to be talking about. And they say, those don't matter now that Christ is here. Christ is over all of those and we can live in grace. Asceticism, worship of angels, getting puffed up on our own thing. And all of these issues were culturally pressing in on the church of Colossae to the poor pastor Epaphras who was like, I couldn't imagine every single day you're coming in and you're having issue after issue after issue that was part of this culture pressing in on the church. Now, we in 2020 have uh, our own culture that is pressing in on the church in which we can all be divided on. And you can probably have a lot of different opinions on this morning. And so I'm not going to uh, side on one side or the other. I'm just going to lay out some things that our culture is currently divided on that are pressing in on the church. And here's where we're probably getting a little personal and kind of your personal beliefs and what you believe is happening in culture today. Uh, or this may just expose some things of like, huh, I didn't know that was happening in culture today. So either way, I hope this is encouragement towards that. So a couple things that are happening. One, social justice is a huge thing, right? I mean, you've heard the term over and over again. Social justice is a big, big deal that is happening in culture right now. Good or bad, whether you land on one side or the other, social justice is the, is the norm and it is the vo- loudest voice speaking right now. And so that's one side. I would say if, if we were in camps, <clears throat> I'd say you could probably have social justice on one side. And then on the other side, you have a lot of the, the patriotism and conservatism and, and the, the cultural things. I'm a good patriot. I believe in these things on the other side. And you get so dedicated to this one side that I dig in and I stay here. I get so dug in and divided on this side that I stay there. Uh, it could be Reparations. It could be COVID. It could be our culture's division on abortion, um, our culture's division on, on, on sexuality, and the Supreme Court ruling that just came out that, that redefined the definition of sexuality for us. And, and what is that going to mean for the church and religious organizations moving forward? Because it will, I guarantee you, have an impact on the religious institutions as far as Christian colleges and schools, as well as in the church and clergy. And this is just one step towards something that is going to move beyond. And, and whether you land on the side of like, this is a really good thing and we want to protect people's rights, I agree, yes we do. Or on the other side where we start to redefine definitions that are not ours to redefine, on both sides of the aisle you're going to be divided this morning. And I want to just pick on one specific thing this morning and I want to kind of explain it because I think if we can dissect this one issue, it's going to explain all the other issues that are out there in culture. I know that's a really big thing to, to brag about. Like you really, you're going to pick one thing that's going to explain all of culture. 
Kind of. Okay, so, so stick with me. I hope this is helpful. But this is something I've been studying a lot this week and just really engrossing way too much time in because I find it fascinating because I really do feel like it's where we are as a, as a nation right now. So I'm going to spend a few minutes this morning on one of those things that's dividing us as a nation. And that thing is called critical theory. How many have heard of critical theory before? Good. Okay. Uh, so Mark was so happy that he was in first. He's like, I've heard of it. So I'm going to raise my hand. So like it. Uh, critical theory. So let me just explain what that is, because a lot of you guys are like, uh, okay, so it's a sociological term, and there's a lot of different things it could be called. You may know it as identity politics, critical race theory. Some go as far as saying it's neo-Marxism. It's this whole thing that is fueling every conversation in our culture right now. So let me just give you a definition from an article that I highly recommend by a guy named Neil Shavini. Uh, and, and, and in this article, it's a six-part article, so it's not like a blog. You're going to sit down and be like, Okay, I got my definitions. It's going to be a six-part thing, but he explains this so well. And the question he asks in this article, can critical theory and Christianity live together, or are they so divided that we need to just divorce one from the other? And I'm going to just give you his definition because I think it's a good definition. Contemporary critical theory, this is it, views reality through the lens of power, dividing people into oppressed groups and oppressor groups along various axes like race, class, gender, sexuality orientation, physical ability, and age. So in these authors and in these books on critical theory that is being promoted a lot in our culture, they would actually give charts and, and degrees of oppression and they would say the least oppressed people are older white Christian males, and, and they are the most powerful, uh, most dominant, and so they're the less oppressed people in the United States. And then on the other side, it would list all these oppressed groups, and it would kind of label them from, from all these things of race and class, sexual orientation, physical ability, and age, and they kind of just rank them as far as who's more or less oppressed. But it's a lens, a, a, a pair of glasses that you look through that says we look through the lens of power, and that power is what's dividing people into these oppressed groups and oppressor groups. Critical theory today encompasses entire uh, and disciples like um, disciplines like or, or, or words you may like hear within this structure. So if you think critical theory, think of big umbrella, and underneath these umbrellas are these words, postmodernism, feminism, queer theory, critics, critics race theory, all these kind of emerge out of critical theory. It's a version of social justice that says there's an imbalance of power and that the oppressed deserve to be given the same amount of power as those with more power. So if you think of all of the, the riots and all the things that are going on today, that's the fight that those who are oppressed should have the same amount of power as those who are doing the oppressing. And this group are not always clear when you add in the idea of intersectionality, okay? It's the fact that some can be part of an oppressed group or at the same time part of an oppressor group. So let me give you an example of that. You're like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Oppressed, oppressor, critical theory, what are you talking about? Let me give you an example. So women are part of this thing. They would say are part of the oppressed group. Women rights, and they're trying to get everybody as women to come back together and say, man, we need to unify. We need to get back to where we were to be called, you know, as the Bible says, that we are, you know, daughters of Christ, this idea of regaining who we are. So let's just say women as, as part of the oppressed group. Well, in that oppressed group as women, the question comes up, 
in a lot of studies, and the question is this. So are women of color oppressed at a different level than white women? And so in this larger group, there's a smaller group, and whether you answer yes or no to that, it, it isn't the issue. The issue is these are the, the powers that are at play, and this is the idea of critical theory. And again, not to go too far to this, but you probably like, you already have, Joel, but not to go too much further, but I need to highlight one more piece, and that is we need to define what, we, what, would they, what they say is oppression. Because I think we all have an idea of what we would define oppression as. The Bible's pretty clear on what oppression would be. But I think for us, it's getting redefined. And so I want to define it the way they would say it. So traditionally, oppression would refer to acts of cruelty, injustice, violence, and coercion. To which, let's just be honest, the church has a pretty jaded past. Let's just be real. I mean, we could say the church is whitewashed and it's beautiful and it's had amazing history throughout the years. But let's just be honest. It's had some really negative, bad images placed on it. And so we have that as part of us. And we would pro- I would agree that that would be oppression, cruelty, injustice, violence, and coercion. We should be against those things as followers of Jesus Christ. Yes, absolutely. But now many mainstream authors would define oppression as this. Ways in which the dominant social group, let me say that again, ways in which the dominant social group imposes its norms, values, and ideas on society to justify its own interests. So it's gone from acts of cruelty, justice, coercion, to now social groups that impose norms, values, and ideas on society. So let me just explain what that would look like in today's terms. Ready? So if you think that the Bible teaches abortion is wrong, that's probably because you're trying to control women's bodies. It's an ideology that you can't hold to. Do you think that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin? Well, that's probably because you've been trained and and taught to be homophobic. Do you believe that the Bible teaches that husbands have the responsibility to lead their families? Well, that's because you're trying to preserve male supremacy. And so all of these issues that are coming out of the church are real. You, if you haven't had discussions of these, you will have them. And, and, and they see this as saying the, the, the Bible and Christianity and the church is doing so much to oppress those who are already oppressed. And what are you doing to lift us up and give us power? What are you doing to change some of those things? And they start to redefine it to say it's not just about the acts. It's about the values, the norms, and the ideas. And that's where it starts to get a little crazy and gray when you start to say oppression is just ideas, oppression is values, oppression is, is norms. But that's where they land. The truth then becomes relative based on your status in one of those groups. So what you have out there in critical theory is this movement that is saying if my ideas and norms are in the, in the minority, they deserve, they deserve to be in the majority. And those who are in the majority who have these ideas and norms are trying to figure out, is this privilege that I have these norms or is it just that I have these norms? How do these two work together? Okay, Both sides can get into the problem of a self-made religion. When we, we talk about what is here and good, we do two things. We can say in these conversations, we can run the risk of elevating those positions into something that is above God and above his law. So on one side of the camp, I've picked on you for a while, so let me switch over here and pick on somebody else for a little bit. So for those who are in this idea of patriotism and things like that, yes, it is a good thing. Great. It's America. It's flags. It's all this kind of things. Fourth of July is coming up. Amen. I love fireworks. It's going to be awesome. When you start to make patriotism into a god or an idol, that's when it starts to lose any kind of semblance for me. And I will start to look at you and say, really? 
Are you devoted to the United States or are you devoted to Jesus? Because ultimately, as I read my Bible, when we get into Revelation and when he comes back, we ain't around. So just put out that out there. We aren't part of the nations when he comes around somehow in this whole messy, crazy thing called Revelation. But is it a good thing? Yes. Should we be part of it? Yeah, absolutely. Should we honor our history? Yes. Yes. Should we make it an idol? No. Should I, should I make social justice this thing that's good and it could do some really good things? Absolutely. Should we make it an idol? No. If you live and die on either of these, you've taken each of them and you've placed them and said, that will be my God and I will die on that hill. And Jesus says, the only thing you die on in this world, if you are a Christian, is the kingdom. And you are dying for me and my thoughts, my beliefs. And we have to run everything, not through the lens that they want us to run it through, but we run everything through the lens of the gospel. We run everything through the lens of scripture. We run everything through the lens of our king. If we don't, sin starts to get redefined. It already is redefined. Um, And I'm going to explain how that works within the gospel in just a second. But I think if you were to take a poll in culture and you were to ask, let's just just go to the Sermon on the Mount for a second, right? And you read the Sermon on the Mount. And I were to take that out into into the world and I say, hey, do you think Jesus is right or do you think he's going too far in the Sermon on the Mount as far as what is sin? I guarantee you, I would probably have most majority, 90% look at the Sermon on the Mount and be like, he was okay on one or two of those, but I think he goes a little far on pretty much every other part of his sermon. Like, I, I can't believe he would hold me accountable to that. You're saying that's a sin? That's not a sin. That's just the way life is. We can't, we, that's dated, it's old, your Bible's old and dated, you're old and dated, I know. And so this whole thing, you gotta know, is just, it, it doesn't make sense. It's not sin. Oppression, not sin, is our fundamental problem. That, that's what the, the, the culture is saying. Oppression, not sin, is our fundamental problem. They miss that oppression is sin. <laughs> the sin is clearly part of who we are, and the only thing that's going to remedy any of our divided things is, is when we deal with sin. All these issues that divide us all come back to the root of sin. And Paul says all these cultural issues, as great as they are to get into and as, as, as awesome as they are, they do nothing to solve the real problem of sin. They do nothing. So in that, I would say I don't believe that critical theory and Christianity are always going to be working well together in the long run. Let me give an example of why I believe that. There was a Twitter uh, thread that came through from Union Theological Seminary, and they were responding to a, a statement banner head that said, Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. And here was their Twitter thread. We deny the Bible is, in, is inerrant. We, de, we deny the Bible is inerrant or infallible because it reflects both God's truth and human sin and prejudice. And since we can't reconcile God's truth and human sin and prejudice, and if you don't, look, you don't need to look far in the Bible to see human prejudice and human sin from the Old Testament, in a couple of weeks we're going to be looking at a real gem um, by the name of Jonah, and we're going to talk about some of the prejudices he had, and we're going to start talking about those kind of things. So the Bible, those things you see in the Bible, you're like, oof. Oof. But at the same time, they, as, 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 as much as they're there, they can't be reconciled. Whereas they say God's truth and human sin prejudice, they cannot be reconciled. And so here's what they say. Biblical scholarship and critical theory help us discern which messages are God's messages. And that's a seminary. So, so you can see this is starting to creep into even where we are now. And here's Paul's answer to that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom 
and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, here's the thing. The gospel is always going to be offensive. It should be offensive. I think if you've grown up in church long enough, you just assume the gospel's good news because you know it's good news for you. But when you go out into the real world and you start talking about Jesus and you start talking about the fact that your good neighbor who has better kids than your kids, who is doing a killer job at work and you're scraping and cutting corners and dodging out of work, and, right? And they're doing a better job morally than you're doing morally. And you go to that person and say, hey, you're, you're doing a really good job morally. You're killing it with your kids. Guess what? All that when we get to heaven is going to burn up. Say what? Yeah, it's, it, it doesn't mean anything. When we get to heaven, that's all going to burn up. It's, it's like this wheat and chaff thing. Here, let me show you in the Bible where wheat and chaff come in. What? I've worked hard on this. I've done a really good job. I've done a lot of good things to get here. Yeah, absolutely. Amen, brother. I get you. But the gospel says it's only Christ that gets us into eternity. It's only Christ that matters. And so the gospel is offensive at its root, and it's going to become more offensive as we move on. The gospel is what we need to start coming to the forefront. David Platt says it like this in his book called Countercultural. Now we see the offense of the gospel coming to the forefront. Tell any modern person that there is a God who sustains, owns, try that out, defines, try that out, rules, one day will judge everyone, put that out there, him or her, and that person will balk in offense. Any person would. I would. Can we just be real? As Christians, we think, yes. Preach, get them. Can we just be honest, though? Like, I would balk at some of that if it wasn't for Jesus in my life. You want to defi- define my family? You, wanted, you, want, you want me to surrender my kids to you? Okay, maybe. Right? All of those things, we balk in offense because the gospel is offensive. Any person would, and every person has. That is our natural reaction to God. Only David Platt can put it that way. That is our natural reaction to God. The gospel is offensive. And so we must run everything in culture through the lens of Scripture, again, through the lens of our King, and through the lens of His gospel. I mean, think about Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you were dead. (laughs) Great. Sign me up. In, in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. Again, uncircumcision. What are we dealing with this thing? God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. There's a debt? What are you talking? Legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. I love this. And he put them to open shame. We're not supposed to shame anybody. What are you talking about, open shame? No, he literally put them to open shame. I mean, like, totally disarmed, throw them out, like, running away. I won't get into that. Open shame, triumphing over them in him, showing who's boss. He was not afraid to do so. So in this culture category, let me just show you on the screen as we finish out Christianity and critical theory and and, and how this makes sense. So I don't know if you can read that or not, so let me just kind of walk through it. And here's why I think they're they're ultimately going to come to a head. Because we believe as Christians that the gospel is the creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We've said that many times here. It's creation that we were created in the garden in a relationship with Jesus Christ. All of, our, all of humanity, please hear me, all of humanity, all human race is designed in the image of God. We all bear it. So let's not go crazy judging people for 
Anyway, let's not go to that. So creation is we were made in the image of God, created for him, and then came the fall. Well, see, in critical theory, here's the issue that they have. They said, no, 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 we are not born of God. There is no God. So our beginnings, we all start not in creation. We all start in the fall. We all start oppressed because that's what we're born into as oppression. So either that's patriarchy or white supremacy. You can read through the whole list of all the things that are in those categories of oppression. If we don't clearly articulate creation that we are all made in the image of God and he is here to restore relationship, we're going to lose any conversation we have with them. I guarantee it. Because if we all just start at the fall, that's where it's going to get messy. So they would say a fall is the oppression. So we would say fall is sin. They would say there is nothing as sin. There's just oppression, oppression and not oppressed. And then they say the only way to solve the oppression is through activism. Protest, resistance, education, awareness. That's the only way these things get solved. We have a different solution, the fact that it's Christ, and only Christ is going to bring these things to to a head and, and solve these things, but that's where they would lead. And then in their gospel, they would say the end is liberation, equality, power reversal, justice, and diversity, that the powerless finally have a voice and are able to speak to the powerful, and the powerful are brought low. Now, in the gospel, you can kind of trace that as well and say, well, in the restoration, there will be those things. When we get to heaven, there will be equality. There will be power reversal. But you know where the power reversal is going to be, though? <laughs> God's going to be ruling and reigning. We're going to be on our face. So that's going to be the power reversal. So good luck with that. Um, but ultimately, it is the idea that there is a, a restoration that is to come. And here's the thing. If we just keep on the critical theory gospel, it, it doesn't end well. If we can somehow show the gospel meets them in each of these areas, then I think we can truly understand how the gospel can really affect us as we move forward in these divisions that are affecting us as a nation. I'm telling you, the more I read this, the more it just made perfect sense. The more it just made, the, the, the light bulb went on as far as why everybody's so outraged and why everybody's so not outraged. And it just made perfect sense because they're missing the most important piece. We are not all born oppressed or oppressors. We were born from a God who started in creation and said, I want you to know you were made in my image. Yes, we are broken by the fall. We are all born sinful. But in reality, if we miss the creation and restoration that God truly wants to have a relationship with us and he's defining justice for us, then we, we miss so much. So, all that to say, critical theory is one of the one issues that I think is probably feeding into a bunch of smaller ones. And it's the issue that, as Paul said, has the potential to disqualify us, has the potential to be judged by us, has the ability to be taking us captive and even delude us. And I don't want that for us as a body of believers. So this morning, again, I'm not going to give you a ton of things because we're going to finish this conversation next week in chapter 3 where he talks about putting on the new self. We're going to talk about some practical things next week. This week, I just want to lay the groundwork to say, I hope you can understand why things are so heated right now. It's because people have been feeling so oppressed for so long, and they have no way to fix it. And Christianity can't remain silent on the other side and ignore it, because we need to come together. We're going to talk about that more next week. But let me just give you some things that may be helpful practical as we finish out this morning. Number one, think of someone who is opposite of you in a number of ways. Maybe you don't have to go very far for that. 
Don't look at your spouse, because if that's the case, we're going to really have some fun. That'd be great. Just talking about you, idiot. Okay, don't do that. Um, think of someone who seems opposite to you in a number of ways. This could be someone who looks or lives differently than you, or has maybe even wronged you in some way, has said something on social media that you took offense to, right? By the way, just as a freebie, you're welcome for this one. Do me a favor. Here's a real good rule. Don't post emotionally. You're welcome. Okay. Um, I'm just so mad. I just can't stop. Post. Oh, dear Lord, what have I done? Okay? You ever been there before? I've done that before. It doesn't end well for any of us. So don't post emotionally. Think through it rationally. That's a freebie. Anyway, um, imagine doing something to bless that person or help that person. So, okay, I've thought of the person opposite me. Think of what you do to help them. And then what barriers immediately come to your mind? Write those down. This has happened to me many times. And I'm like, well, I can't because then they would. And what if I, I might not say it the way they, I wonder. Think about those barriers. Start to dissect those a little bit. See if those are actually biblical or if those are just you. So that's, that's one thing. Number two, what cultural beliefs have the capacity to be turned into idols for you? We all have them. We're all there. But which ones have the ability to be idols for you and not just cultural? And lastly, gospel bears fruit when it takes action. We know that from earlier. Think about those who are around you right now. What actions do you need to take to advance the gospel? Even if it's offensive. So just think through a couple of those things um, this week. And like I said, next week we're going to pick up in, in chapter 3. I want to offer a couple more things in chapter 3 as he explains a little bit more about how do we live in this new world and this new self in this kingdom in a way that honors Jesus, even in the midst of our cultural divide. So let me pray for you. Pray for me. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for hard passages. Thank you for hard things that we know are happening in our culture. God, we, I think of the struggle and the toil that Paul mentions earlier. I pray that we as believers in Christ would toil well. We wouldn't just run from these things or, or not talk about these issues, but God, that we'd have conversations that would honor you. I pray we wouldn't just be divided in them. God, that we'd, be, we'd actually have conversation. I pray that we would define things the way you define them. We would allow Scripture to define what we need to define correctly. We would look through the lens of the Scripture to our King. God, as we sing out, as we close out, this is, a, I thought, a song that just closes us perfectly because it points everything back to you. It's only you. In Christ alone do I have any kind of hope for this world. And so we put everything back into your hands. I pray that this would be a proclamation of us as a church as we finish out, that it's you, God, that we need more than anything to go for us. In your name we pray. Amen.